This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the opioid epidemic. More specifically, we'll discuss with Dr. Anna Lemke, Stanford University's Chief of Addiction Medicine, her recent work published by Johns Hopkins titled Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It Is So Hard to Stop. Anna, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Dr. Lemke's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, deaths from opioid painkillers have quadrupled from approximately 4,000 to over 16,000 between 1999 and 2013. This is largely explained by a similar quadrupling of medical prescriptions of opioid painkillers over the same time period. In 2012, for example, physicians and other licensed clinicians wrote over 80 painkiller and over 35 sedative prescriptions per 100 persons. Not surprisingly, overall prescription drug spending has doubled to $234 billion over approximately the same time period. The question begged, of course, is what explains the dramatic increase in opioid use and abuse? Drug dealer MD is an attempt by Dr. Lemke to, as she states in the introduction, to understand how well-meaning doctors ended up prescribing pills that are killing their patients, how their patients seeking treatment for illness and injury ended up addicted to the very pills meant to save them, and why do we keep prescribing and consuming these dangerous drugs even though we know better? So with that as background, um, Anna, your title is, of course, what perhaps may strike uh, the reader first, drug dealer MD. Let me ask uh, my first question. What explains or how did you come to this title? Yeah, thank you. So I, I called it Drug Dealer MD in part to be intentionally provocative so people would be interested. But I also realize it's somewhat misleading because my book is not about uh, willfully malicious doctors exchanging prescriptions for cash. My book is really about the average well-intended doctor caught up in a system gone awry and when I was um, sort of shopping this title around to friends and colleagues, it was interesting because um, non-physician friends and colleagues, their reaction was, well, won't you offend, you know, other doctors and your colleagues with that title? But when I asked other doctors, you know, I'm writing this book on the prescription drug epidemic, and um, I, want to think what, I want to hear what you think of the title. The title is going to be Drug Dealer MD. Uh, invariably, my, my physician friends would respond, yeah, that's me. So that's really, I think, the heart of what I'm trying to get at is that I, in my profession, have frequently felt like a drug dealer, um, and so have many of my colleagues. And it really speaks to sort of a crisis moment in medicine that, you know, we went into medicine to heal suffering and save lives, and oftentimes we feel like we're doing the opposite. Okay, thank you. In sum, uh, your effort is, as you state uh, in the intro, to tease apart the many strands or the many reasons that explain the opioid addiction epidemic. Let, let me ask you to unpack uh, in our discussion a few of, of 
many of these reasons uh, that I, however, imperfectly assigned to five categories. Culture, patient behavior, physician behavior, organized medicines behavior, and market or industry for forces. And since we started with the, uh, the title drug dealer MD, under physician behavior, um, I've identified uh, eight or so reasons that you discuss in the book. Um, you know, the first, which needs no probably or limited discussion, is simple overprescribing. You inferred uh, the pill mill uh, problem, and you also used the phrase uh, doctors as baristas. But I thought it was very interesting, um, your, your discussion about there is pressure to treat pain or overtreat pain via patient satisfaction scores, and you mentioned specifically uh, the CAP scoring or the Consumer Assessment of Health Plan scores. Could you explain that further? Sure. So, you know, in order for hospitals and clinics to get reimbursed from uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they have to meet certain quality standards. And one of the ways that <clears throat> CMS assesses whether or not hospitals and clinics are meeting those standards is by surveying patients who get their care in those settings. And since about the 1990s, um, several of the questions on those surveys have been things like, do you feel that your doctor did everything possible to address your pain? Uh, and not only on the CMS surveys, but also on the Joint Commission surveys. So the Joint Commission is an organization that accredits hospitals also for quality of care. So the Joint Commission also surveyed patients around this. And the, the pressure on physicians to get good scores on those surveys cannot be underestimated. Um, when the hospital or clinics don't do well on those HCAP surveys or the Joint Commission surveys, um, it's not just their reputation that's threatened, it's their actual bottom line. They're not going to get money uh, from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services if they don't do well on those surveys. So there's been enormous pressure on doctors to um, please all types of patients, even when doing so isn't in the best interest of the patient. I, I will say um, not only are those surveys um, from, you know, large accrediting and third-party payer kinds of organizations, but also within hospitals. It's one of the ways that hospitals rate their own doctors. Um, it's one of the ways that they measure criteria for professional advancement. So what happened in the 1990s and early 2000s was doctors just basically realized, hey, if I don't give this patient whatever they want, I'm going to end up with a low patient satisfaction score, and I'm going to, you know, I don't, it's not worth it to me. Okay. In fact, uh, just as a, a sidebar, the outpatient physician payment system proposed rule and final rule CMS uh, published this year includes CMS dropping the, uh, the pain domain in the HCAP score, or in the CAP score, excuse me, because the view is that, per your point, this is pressuring these scores, satisfaction scores are pressuring, uh, possibly pressuring physicians to overprescribe, and so that's the action uh, CMS will take beginning uh, next year in 17. You um, also discuss in this category I placed um, the dynamic where physicians for time expediency um, are turning more to psychoactive drugs versus, and you know, the abandonment of talk therapy. But let me ask you about something you don't hear much discussed at all. You, um, 
you say that there can be this prisoner's dilemma uh, problem in the uh, physician-patient dynamic. Um, could you explain? I've, I've not heard that discussed in this context, so I'm very curious. Uh, could you explain for our listeners uh, what that means? Sure. So the prisoner's dilemma is a concept that comes from behavioral economics. And it's basically a way to understand situations in which um, you have two parties interacting and mutual cooperation is advantageous for both of those uh, parties, but one-sided betrayal is even more advantageous for the person who betrays. So the classic example from behavioral economics is you've got two, two, two people who committed a crime, and they get caught by the police, and they're just about to get put in solitary confinement and interrogated. But they promise each other that they won't rat each other out, that they'll cooperate with each other, and that way they'll, they'll have better outcomes with with law enforcement. So they get put in these voluntary confinement and they both get interrogated. And if both of them keep their promise to the other uh, and they don't rat each other out, then um, they'll get about a year in prison. Now, if they both rat each other out, so they both betray, they'll get 20 years in prison. But if one of them keeps his promise and doesn't rat the other one out, but the other one rats out, then the one who the one who kept his promise actually gets life in prison, and the one who ratted goes free. So that's an example in which if they had cooperated, they would have both gone to prison but for a short amount of time. But when one of them doesn't cooperate, then by betraying his, you know, his comrade, he actually gets to walk away free. So there's a very enticing opportunity uh, in betrayal, because if you're the only one who betrays, um, then then your outcome might be better. So it's risky, uh, but the upside is big. And this kind of prisoner's dilemma situation is one that you see in human interactions all the time. There are also many interesting examples in nature where it happens. But there's a, an economist named Axelrod who um, decided that wouldn't it be interesting if we can set up a computer simulation project where we had what's called an iterative prisoner's dilemma. So instead of these two individuals meeting just once and having no idea if they were going to cooperate or betray, we'll have them meet again and again so there's some sense of what's coming, of whether this person is inclined to cooperate or betray, and then I can adjust my behavior accordingly. And he, he put out a sort of a computer simulation uh, competition worldwide, the Prisoner's Dilemma. He had all kinds of submissions from all over the world. And what he discovered that was, and, and there was a winning entry, okay? And the winning entry, I'll, I'll tell you that in a second what it was. But basically, um, what he found was that um, Prisoner Dilemma strategies that were always nasty, where people never cooperate with anybody else, did very poorly. So the, the outcomes were poor for everybody. But interestingly, where people were always nice and always cooperated was, were also poor outcomes. The best outcomes were actually um, a strategy called tit-for-tat. And tit-for-tat means you cooperate with the other person until they betray you. And if, you, if they betray you, then the next time you meet up with them, then you also betray them. Okay, and you keep going like that until they start to cooperate and then you cooperate again. So there is a forgiveness element to, to tit for tat. 
So how does any of that translate to the prescription drug epidemic? Well, you've got doctors who are generally inclined to cooperate and assume that their patients will cooperate too. But if you've got a drug-seeking patient who's addicted to those medications, they're basically going to do whatever they need to do to get, to get more pills from the doctor. And two big mistakes that doctors have made in this opioid epidemic is either by being too nice and just keep, keep on prescribing or being too nasty and essentially firing patients or retaliating, neither of which is helpful to the problem of prescription uh, drug addiction. What works really well uh, is tit for tat. So, for example, I use this all the time in my clinic. I have a patient to whom I'm prescribing Suboxone. Suboxone is an opioid, and it's used to treat opioid addiction. But I'm fully aware that my patient who has opioid addiction is inclined to go astray and maybe use other opioids, use other drugs, or even misuse the Suboxone that I'm giving him or her. On the other hand, I'm also aware that this patient needs Suboxone. So what I do is if there looks like there's some evidence, for example, that my patient might be using other drugs or misusing Suboxone by, let's say, going to another doctor, maybe you're in a drug test that's positive. I do something about that when that comes up. I don't ignore it, but I also don't fire the patient and kick him out of my clinic. I say, hey, you know what? I'm concerned. You got a cocaine-positive screen. Um, you know, that's not what we're going for here. We're talking about recovery while using the Suboxone. So instead of giving you, um, you know, a month's worth of the Suboxone, I'm just going to give you two weeks. You got to come back two weeks early. We're going to do another urine drug screen. And I would go on like that until I felt like my patient was, quote-unquote, cooperating again, and then I would extend uh, the prescription out to another month. And that's essentially how Tit for Tat works in this clinical scenario. Okay, thank you. I'm going to combine two explanations you provide. The first is you note that the social and medical sciences have uh, created people with uh, what you define as new biologized identities which provide a way to be a person or express oneself uh, and to live in society. Um, so they adopt uh, an illness identity. Uh, and you say this is caused in part by the breakdown of traditional social roles. So you have this um, biologized identity creating uh, then uh, next an illness narrative where you say individual differences are defined as, as an illness per se and therefore need, needs to be treated because we normalize these differences. Then you give the example of this, you discuss this patient Karen. So um, the contribution of medicalizing differences leads to this illness narrative, which then creates um, more illness diagnoses. You talk about the increase in, say, uh, autism diagnoses. This is not all to the good. To explain this, maybe it might be most efficient to, to discuss the example you give, which is uh, the patient Karen. Right. So Karen um, was diagnosed, well, she had some learning differences early. She was great in the playground, but she struggled in the classroom. She came from an upper-middle-class family. And so um, with those learning differences, her parents were concerned. They had her evaluated, and she was diagnosed with a variety of different types of, you know, not learning disabilities quite, but some learning differences. She was given, given additional support, and she did well through elementary, junior high, and high school. When she got to college, um, she continued to do reasonably well, but she wasn't like a superstar standout. So then she saw some of her um, 
friends and roommates were diagnosed with ADD and getting stimulant medication, and then she began to wonder if maybe she had ADD, and, and that might be why she wasn't a superior performer. So she went to see a psychiatrist, and after a 45-minute evaluation, walked out with a prescription for Ritalin, which is a stimulant medication for the treatment of ADD. And she began taking Ritalin and immediately noticed she could sit longer, she could concentrate longer, um, she could get a lot more work done. And to cut to the chase, over the next five-plus years, she essentially started using the Ritalin more and more. Um, she, she used the narrative that she needed it in order to get work done, and she got a lot of kudos for it for being successful. Um, around her academic work. She went on to graduate school. But basically, it all started to deteriorate when she was taking massive amounts of Ritalin. Anytime she felt any negative emotion at all, whether it was boredom or fear or whatever it was, she thought, oh, that's my ADHD. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some more Ritalin. And pretty, pretty soon she had two or three, you know, psychiatrists simultaneously in rotation to get massive amounts of pills and, and ultimately... Uh, you know, kind of crashed and burned and had to get treatment for Ritalin addiction. But the, the, the point I really wanted to make with her story was, you know, what happened to her is what happens to so many patients. Their whole identity becomes their illness. And then almost any problem they have gets sort of subsumed by this illness identity um, in which case, the solution is treatment for the illness. And if your solution uh, to the treatment for your illness is taking a pill, then you're really at very high risk for over-consuming that pill. Um, and I think that's a real, a real danger. And I think more broadly, you know, other people have talked about the pathologization of everyday life, or Ian Hacking is a wonderful um, Canadian philosopher who talks about... Um, biologized identities also, and he's the one who particularly brings up the autism example. Certainly there is positive value um, to some extent in sort of having an, an identity that centers around your medical illness. It might help you find a peer, a peer group who can understand what you've been through. It might help you um, frame and understand your behaviors in a way that's advantageous. But I see a very huge risk in going from a biologized identity to taking potentially addictive prescription drugs, especially when we're really talking about performance enhancement, not necessarily um, treating an illness. And so th those, are, those are my concerns, and that's what I was trying to get at with the example of Karen. And this leads to um, what you define as the professional patient and the related victim narrative. And since you mentioned a uh, philosopher, in reading your book, I was reminded of Cangiums, the normal and the pathological. You know, what's health, what's disease? That's not a, oftentimes uh, can be clearly defined. But let me move on to uh, another aspect or dimension uh, to all this. Um, and that's the more we treat pain, uh, you suggest the more patients have a less of a threshold and become hypersensitive. So that's a, obviously an unintended negative consequence. Uh, you see that, obviously, then in your patients. Oh, absolutely. I think that's been really one of the major revelations in medical practice in the last 20 years is this realization that um, opioid analgesics, painkillers, work great in the short term for pain. And when I say short term, I, I mean like on the order of days to a couple of weeks. But if taken longer than that, what they do is they set, they reset the pain threshold in the brain and in the body. 
such that the individual becomes hypersensitive to pain. And so then it becomes this vicious cycle of the, the patient actually experiencing more pain in, in the original locations where they ex- were experiencing pain, but even in additional locations. And we call this phenomenon um, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, hyper meaning more, and algesia meaning pain, to the point where, you know, I have seen many patients who have been on high doses of opioids for years who come in with full body pain, and they literally do have full body pain. A wind passing across their skin can cause them to experience pain. And then related Um, is the uh, pain, the cultural issues, pain as an anathema as opposed to, um, as you suggest, it was previously viewed as a warning system or even possibly, as as you say, an opportunity in some ways for uh, spiritual growth. We can't get uh, uh, away from... Uh, market and commerce issues, and I know we could spend a long time on uh, pharma industries' coercion and their role and part in all this. Um, I'm sure you probably saw um, John Oliver actually did a 17-minute segment on marketing to pharma's marketing to doctors um, uh, recently. It was uh, widely viewed. But let me just ask you generally, what would you um, uh, say are possibly the more problematic aspects of pharma industry behavior. Um, yeah, I saw that John, John Oliver segment. I think he does a great job um, conveying these important issues and still managing to be funny. And I was, there's actually a clip of me on that John Oliver segment um, that lasts for about 15 seconds talking about the importance of paying for non-opioid alternatives to pain. I didn't know it was going to be on there, and he stole it from Al Jazeera. But it was, it was fun to see that segment, and it was quite a surprise to see myself on it. Um, yeah, so, so, so here's the thing about big pharma. It has always been the goal of the pharmaceutical industry to get doctors to prescribe more of their pills. That's, that's no secret. The real question is, why all, of a sudden, why, why all of a sudden did big pharma get such a toehold in medicine? What happened? Because their agenda didn't really change, so something changed in medicine. And essentially what changed was there was a huge paradigm shift in the way that doctors oriented toward treating pain. Uh, prior to 1980, um, we probably weren't doing a very good job with people with serious pain and end-of-life pain. And honestly, today we're probably still not doing a very good job because what happened in the 1980s was a couple of academic uh, you know, physicians started to say, we should prescribe more opioids. As long as we're prescribing opioids uh, for pain, then patients won't get addicted. And that was a huge, huge myth. But it really, um, it really just, it, it kicked off a whole kind of trend in medicine to more liberal prescribing. And, of course, Big Pharma jumped on that. I mean, that was a huge opportunity for them. They began flying these academic thought leaders all around the country to say things like, you know, opioids work for chronic pain, no dose is too high, as long as you're prescribing for pain, patients can't get addicted. You know, today we know that all of those things are untrue. But, you know, doctors heard this at, at reputed academic meetings and thought, well, okay, I've got this patient in terrible pain, and now I've got these, these academic thought leaders saying that this is, quote-unquote, evidence-based medicine, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. And it was also convenient for doctors because, you know, as, as more and more doctors were going to work for large 
into industrial integrated healthcare systems, they had less and less time to see their patients and really get to know them and get a better sense of the whole picture and what might be helpful. They had to see, you know, there are some primary care doctors who see upwards of 40 patients a day. So all of a sudden, not only was prescribing an opioid incredibly convenient for getting patients in and out, but you had patients who were incredibly grateful, right? They came back, you know, a month later and said, wow, that was great. That really worked for my pain. And it did really work. It really did for a month. And that's the problem. So it was this, you know, kind of this convergence of big pharma's agenda and what was convenient for medicine and this infiltration of academic medicine and uh, various regulatory agencies within medicine. And here is per your title or subtitle how doctors were duped. You actually used the word duped in this context. Uh, doctors were duped possibly by other doctors. You note this New England Journal 1980 letter that said there was a slim or no chance of patients becoming addicted. And per your mention, you do discuss market pressures to see an ever-increasing number of patients to meet uh, billing targets. So you're right, there are several factors here uh, converging. We could go on and discuss, you, you go into detail about the FDA's enrichment enrollment study design. You talk about uh, the IOM. You, you mentioned JCO and others' contributions uh, to this relative to responding or over-responding to the belief in undertreatment. Uh, but let me, let's go to uh, solutions in your summary, you say uh, doctors and patients are caught in a web not entirely of their own making, compelled by forces beyond their control to overprescribe and overconsume. You also write overlaying complex biopsychosocial problems are contributing. Uh, organized medicine, again, misrepresenting medical science to promote pill taking. Uh, we touched upon medical disability hinging on patients taking pills and staying sick focusing on the bottom line and valuing patient satisfaction per satisfaction surveys, over wellness, and an interwoven through all this di dynamic between doctors and patients uh, is, the, is this mutual deception. And even when addiction is recognized, and we didn't get into this, insurance companies don't pay for it. This is a pretty bleak uh, summary uh, and, and supported by the evidence, uh, this volume, I should know, comes with about uh, 10 or so pages of notes. Um, but having said all that, where are the opportunities to address this? Yeah, so I think the opportunities are many. Um, it's a complex problem, so it's, the solution won't be easy. But one of the... the one of the movements in medicine, which I think is potentially going to help this problem, is the movement toward what we call value-based care. And this is this idea that instead of paying doctors for every single service they provide, which, by the way, just incentivizes doctors to keep patients sick because the sicker patients doctor, the sicker the sicker the patient is, the more the more you know the more work they'll have. Um, it basically restructures the fee system in order to uh, reimburse doctors and integrated healthcare systems for patients getting well. So I think that's, that's something that we really have to look at figuring out how to do. How can we, if we're still going to continue with our third-party crazy, chaotic third-party payer system with all these different third-party payers, we have to find a way to uh, compensate these healthcare systems for getting patients well, not just for doing a bunch of stuff to them. So, that, so that's one thing. 
I think um, the other important piece is that, you know, we have to bring addiction medicine into the house of medicine in for, you know, pretty much the entire history of uh, modern American medicine, addiction has not been considered an illness. That has to change. We have to teach doctors how to screen and intervene uh, for uh, substance use disorders, including addiction to prescription meds. And we have to get insurance companies uh, to pay for those services because addiction is a growing problem in our society and and we, we just can't, we can no longer ignore it. And we can no longer kind of partition it off to, you know, fancy rehabs in Southern California. We have to provide patients opportunities for care for addiction within mainstream medicine, and it has to be, it has to be paid for. Um, so, so those are, you know, two, two big things I think that we could focus on. The other thing, and this is one that, you know, I, I think is more challenging, is just in terms of all of the social determinants of, of health, right? I mean, more and more we are asking doctors and organized medicine to take care not just of medical problems, but very complex social problems from unemployment to, you know, multi-generational trauma to, you know, you name it. And basically we're, we're, we're not giving doctors the necessary resources or compensation to take care of these complex patients. So instead of giving these patients what they really need, like housing or jobs, we're just writing them for Vicodin. And, and that is really nuts, and that has really contributed to this problem. You know, now you have emergency room doctors who are giving out bags of groceries. That's a very expensive bag of groceries. So what I really think we need to ask ourselves as a society is, what is our social safety net? And do we really want our social safety net to be medicine? I'm not convinced that doctors are the best way to manage and target these incredible psychosocial problems. So if it's not going to be in medicine, then let's create a social safety net for these people. If it's going to be in medicine, let's pay doctors to take care of those issues and give them the resources to do it. I certainly wouldn't degree, disagree, but of course I'm sure you well remember the infamous uh, physicians are the natural advocates for the poor. Um, but with that, uh, Anna, we're sadly we're at our time boundary. I genuinely appreciate for this uh, discussion. Again, your book, Drug Dealer MD. Um, thank you much, and I hope this is um, a much discussed uh, work, uh, certainly in D.C. Thank you again. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.